Hello and welcome to Angel's Costumes Behind the Scenes. I'm Jeremy Angel. I'm Richard Green. And I'm Jonathan Lippman. I'm pleased today that we've got the opportunity to have a chat with Sarah Bowen, MBE. Yes. Services yes. to the, ent- the costume entertainment industry. Not necessarily costume entertainment, but the entertainment industry. Sarah was particularly active during the lockdown period, mobilising teams of people making scrubs and protective clothing from sourced fabric and had teams of people across the city making clothing. And uh, Estelle, our ladies, Cutter, uh, worked with them actually to uh, mm. yeah. get all that together. So, you know, that, that really commendable service. And um, I think she was very proud of the results that they all achieved of the team that she had working for them. Yeah. And aside from that, she's such an experienced supervisor and very proud of her responsibility and the fantastic relationships that she has with designers and, and, and all her collaborators. And the, the position that she has at the ENO is, you know, there's a heck of a lot of responsibility. Yeah. Well, we hope you've been enjoying these conversations. We've been enjoying your feedback. If you have any questions or queries, please email us on podcast.angels.co.uk. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please leave us a review and rate us on iTunes. You can find us on social media. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We are forward slash costume podcast. Or you can visit our website, which is www.angelsbehindthescenes.com. And now here is Jonathan's chat with Sarah Bowen. Good afternoon, everybody. And this afternoon, I'm absolutely thrilled to invite Sarah Bowen to our chat forum. Welcome Sarah. Hi, hi Jonathan. I'm, I'm particularly thrilled that, that we've got this opportunity because in, in normal circumstances you're an incredibly busy person and we have a working relationship that's established itself over the years as, as you have with my colleague Richard and mm. I don't know if you know Jeremy yet, but you've probably seen him in passing. I haven't worked with him like I have with you and Richard, but we uh, we say hello in the corridors. Good, I'm glad because he's you know he's an integral part of of this process, but also of the process at Angels in terms of steering jobs through the building and facilitating. Mm-hmm. And I'm particularly glad that we've got the opportunity to talk to you, Sarah, because I think over many years that I've I've watched you working I think that you have a particular way of working which is groundbreaking but I think is incredibly important for people to know what you do and how you do it because you're first and foremost incredibly kind and you're also an amazing collaborator even when you were doing the work with Les and you were becoming in for whether it was was it was it was it Sheffield and RSC and what? RSC, yeah, the Almeida, yeah, quite a few. It, it was quite a few years, wasn't it, that you were working with him? And and I and I just always remember that your process of handing over information and including the people that you were talking to in in the overall process made everyone feel that they were very much part of what you were trying to achieve, and and, and they all worked that much harder. And you know, compliments away, but <laughs> were very worthy compliments. But tell me, Sarah, how how did you actually start in the in the industry? What was your what was the point that you came into it from education or from a hobby or? Well, it was from education. Dramatics? It, no, definitely not. I never was keen to be front on on the boards. I was always a behind the stage girl. 
I was very, I was good at art at school and I went and did an art foundation course when I was 17. In those days, you're allowed to take, if you're good at art, you're allowed to take your art A-level at school in the lower sixth, as it was called then, Mm. which a lot of us did and then went straight off to art college, which is what I did. I did a two-year arts foundation course at Southwark, which then became Camberwell School of Arts, part of Camberwell. And I was really interested in fashion and textiles and you're allowed to specialise. And I thought that was the way I was veering very much into textiles and... Right at the end of our course, at the end of the second year, just before we were about to apply for, you know, our degrees or higher national diplomas or whatever, we had a we had a small theatre design project where we went to the Young Vic Theatre and um, had a tour around the theatre backstage and on stage and was set a little project. And I walked into the wardrobe there, which was a very small it's had a lot of work done now, but it's this very small little room with, mm. it was run by a wardrobe mistress called, or supervisor called Phyllis Byrne, quite a formidable Scottish lady um, from Pitlockry. And Sheila Toner, who's quite a big costume maker now, or was. Yeah. Yeah, and they showed me around and I just absolutely fell in love with the place. And I, I just had this, I just, I was with my tutor and I said, do you think I could do some work experience here? And she said, well, just ask. And I asked and... I went back about two weeks later and did two weeks work experience. Within the wardrobe department? Within the costume department, yeah, just in the costume department. But they had a little, they had a tiny little dye room. It was sort of in the roof of the wardrobe and they had this tiny little dye room and I was doing, I taught a bit about dyeing and breaking down. They showed me how to use a industrial machine, which was mega scary. I'd never used anything big. And, but I was sewing costumes. I was in some fittings. It was incredible. It was absolutely amazing. And in my second week, we had a fit-in with Helen Miram. They were doing... David Thacker was the artistic director of The Young Vic back then. And he had a, a lot of Arthur Miller plays. They were doing Two-Way Mirror, which was Bob Peck and Helen Mirren. And, wow. and I was passing pins to Sheila while Helen Mirren was being fitted. And I was just blown away by it. It was absolutely incredible. So yeah. So you knew who Helen Mirren was. Yeah. So your your connection with performers and theatre as a as an audience member or just Yeah. I my parents, although there's no one theatrical per se in my family, they're quite an artistic bunch. And we very much read a lot at home and my parents took me to the theatre quite a lot. So and, and I mean, Helen Mirren was on TV quite a lot, I think, back then as well. So I think I just, I yeah, I was aware of people. Also, I, um, I was reading Time Bends, which was Arthur Miller's autobiography. So I was sort of aware of him and that as well. So, yeah, I mean, I had a I had a sense of love in theatre, but I wasn't I was very much just wanting to do something in art when I was at the, doing my foundation course. and. Mm textiles I didn't have a um I didn't have a I didn't realize there was actually jobs in costume until we did this little assignment because you know when we were growing up and we were going through the process of education the careers guidance there seemed to be a sort of a a bit of a shadow over if you wanted to go and follow an arts orientated career it could either be fashion or fine art you know commercial art or fine art yeah they, they didn't seem to 
be any grasp of what could be in between. No, absolutely. And and actually, my portfolio that I sort of worked up during my foundation course was very fashion orientated because that's what I knew. So I I quickly changed my. I thought I was going off to Middlesex Polytechnic to do fashion and textiles, mm. and I changed very last minute and drove my tutors up the wall because I changed my direction last minute and applied for Wimbledon and for Croydon as a result of that work placement as a work result of that works placement and um and got offered both the Croydon was the theatre design which was the one I was really interested in and Wimbledon was the theatre making one which I which I did get a place in but actually I took the Croydon course and they said to me that my portfolio was very fashion orientated but I'd had such a glowing reference from the young bit costume department from Phyllis that they were they could see that I had I was had a passion for theatre and costume and they they sort of took a bit of a punt on me which was brilliant and I was in such a great year there was a couple of Rob Allsop was in the year above me for anyone that's heard of him yeah (laughs) really famous costume props maker that makes for the movies and theatre and he literally is the go-to the go-to person if you want anything that's to to work through a concept he's a marvellous person to come up with a an identifiable product as a result of a concept yeah absolutely from start to finish the process is incredible and it's very exciting to work with him and I love it now that we do we get the chance to work with him quite a lot who else was was amongst your so Sarah Campbell was in my class so there was only 12 in each year Uh, sorry no there wasn't there was 12 in set and costume and 12 in lighting and stage management but in the first year you did a bit of everything and then the second year you specialized in set and costume design or lighting production management and stage management and in the third year you specialized again but at that point you could go out and um, you did you took a six months work placement and I went back to the Young Vic for a bit did was dressing actually I should say as well that they kept me on all through college I was dressing a lot in the evening so I had that constant I was lucky compared to my peers who were sort of starting off. I was really lucky that I had that first foot on the rung with the ladder because I was already a dresser by the time I was sort of into my, you know, halfway through my my mm. course, my degree. So. Well, you say lucky, but, but you know, at the, at the point that you were absorbing all of this information and process, you, you, you were working hard. You, you know, you, you had a work ethic back then that they could then pull on in terms of giving you yeah. the opportunities and the experience. Yeah. So, you know, to, to, a lot, to, a, to a great extent, we are all masters of our own destiny. Yeah. Because yeah. You, you wouldn't have had that opportunity if you were basically sitting there filing your nail. No, no, true. I do, yeah. I'm a get-up-and-go person, I'm, I'm sure that's true. And they would have seen that and, and you know, pounced on it because that, that quality... And also... You know, all of that time, you're you're absorbing the psychology of backstage in terms of yeah. how to approach performers, when to go in, when to withdraw, the the the, the you know sniffing sniffing the air and and, and yeah. learning, and that is that is so important. And you know, we we tell people all the time that that the best way of progressing is by starting at the very bottom, as the majority of us have had to do, and yeah. literally just immersing yourself in it at, at, at every level, because that's the only way you will ever be able to completely understand 
what is actually quite a complex process. Yeah, it is. And there's so there's so much to it. There's so many learning, not just in the costume department, but the whole of the backstage, well, mm. the whole of the theatre set up. Mm. Mm. And I loved that about the Young Vic, maybe because it was a small space and it was, I mean, you hear people say about it, it's a family and places like that are a family, but it it really was. Mm. And it was, I loved dressing there and I was really lucky. I, I, yeah, I did have a little mini career while I was learning as well that I kept going back to. Were you living at home at that time? I was living at home... Uh, for the first year or two, I lived in, I moved from, I'm from South London, but I moved all the way to Croydon, just about 40 minutes in the car. I remember my mum seeing me off when I left, packed my car up and she burst into tears. And, you know, I was home the following Sunday with, with my washing. <laughs> just, but I loved the, I did love the theatre life. And I wasn't the only one that was, a lot of us worked, we studied, but we also were, um, we got jobs as dressers or, you know, some of the some of the stage management were doing ASM and there was a bit of voluntary work. And your course tutors recommended that. Yeah, they did. It was a really it was a pr- really practical course and they did. They encouraged it. They I mean, they got a little bit stressed in the third year of some of us. And actually some people with this six months work placement. I mean, this course doesn't exist anymore. It was absolutely fantastic, but it it changed a, a bit and then it became a two year course and then it sort of fizzled out. And now it's, now it no longer it exists. I think as Wimbledon expanded and offered more uh, variety of courses, theatre courses, I think people tend to go there more as well. And there's more, there's more theatre design courses all over now, which is brilliant. Yeah. And what, what- what was the ratio in in terms of that that pushed you more towards cost ultimately towards costume? What because you know you're doing a course that's set on costume. Did you then just follow all the options that could that led you to costume? Or yeah, you did. You did. You had to keep up. They called it theatre design and allied crafts. So we in the second year when we specialised either into the stage management side or the or the design side. Um, you would do do set and costume. You'd like to do a model box, but for your set design and there, and you would do a project where you would basically be the designer, mm. and then the tutors would critique you. And quite often they were for small amateur dramatics actual productions, or we had because it's Croydon, and we had Fairfield halls around the corner. So quite often you would compete against each other really, and then the successful design would get realised. So you would see your real costumes and sets on stage for Surrey Opera at the Ashcroft Theatre. So that was super exciting, yeah. And most of us got a chance to have to design. But I do remember Sue Adams was our course director and I remember her saying to me that I would make a really great supervisor, costume supervisor. And at the time, I was quite hurt by it because I just thought I would be a designer, costume designer. And she she explained to me then, which was really invaluable, actually. She said, costume designers, it's very rare for you to just be a costume designer in theatre. I know in film, that's obviously not the case. And actually in opera, my experience in opera is you do have separate costume designers more now and musicals. But back then, you had to do both. It was very unusual to just be a costume designer and it sort of broke my heart a little bit because I wasn't great at set design. I was all right at making the little 
model books, mm. you know, the practical side of it. But I, I didn't have that architectural eye, and it's, and I knew it deep down. I knew it. I was a costume person. Mm. I was a good maker. I was a good, a good drawer. I could draw the designs. I was good at breaking down. We did that sort of aspect at the course. We did dyeing and breaking down. We had outside costume makers come and do sections you know a six-week block on how to cut patterns and then we'd have another someone coming in and teach us how to uh, print and do some prop making and all sorts of three costume prop making so it was I mean it wasn't long enough really it would have been great to have done six months blocks on all those things but you came out quite well rounded yeah but because I think I was good at the organizing side of it and good with the people she saw the potential of me being a good supervisor which she was totally right because that's that's the way I that's what how what I ended up doing and have had a really successful career of doing that. Yeah, absolutely. As somebody who came to costume myself, as somebody that came to costume design, you know, pretty late within the the stages of my career, as initially a costumier and and then moving into design, as you have just described, there's that point where do you go for design or do you go for the organization of design yeah and I suppose and and both of them are very very specific job skills and as you explain in 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 theater in especially in this country the design concept tends to be uh, embraced within both set and costume which from my point of view working in theater as a costume designer I always find quite frustrating because often I am I'm overlooked for job opportunities because I don't do sets. So I try very constructively to align myself with, you know, set designers who in return are not interested in costume. Yeah. Which which, you know, is quite limiting because you're talking broadening it out a little bit. You've got the problem of budgets and you you know, allocation of labor. Yeah. So and I and I always find that a bit of a shame but it's something that you have to just keep pushing forward on and hopefully you know you're one one day you'll meet producers who kind of absolutely understand that actually set and costume are completely different disciplines and yes they are all part of the same the look of a production but the psychological aspect of both of those disciplines are very different yeah absolutely and I think it's I mean there is a lot of designers that are great at both Les Brotherstone being one of them he's incredible at set and costume and there's you know there's lots of lots of people like that but I do I agree with you I think and I think in this in the way designers are allocated quite often it's goes set designer first then it goes costume and lighting sort of Mm -hmm on on a part quite often to get that sort of thing i'm very rarely on parity with yeah well yeah definitely definitely don't get me started on that (laughs) and frequently when i'm brought in to do costume for for whatever reason because whether it's the set designer not wanting to do both or a producer wanting to split it whatever the reason even even when they want me there my parity isn't isn't the same as set and it's it's funny how that's and that's a historical situation historical and it's because it's it's interesting because if you went hour for hour as well I mean I don't want it to be like costume versus set at all but I I feel like from a costume designer's point of view you start so early Mm -hmm. um you're 
but then you don't just hand your designs over to costume makers or costume supervisors. You're there throughout the whole pr- process. You know, mm. your mm. your your fabric shopping, uh, sampling with your supervisor. You're meeting your makers at the early stage. You know, you're coming to you going to the angels and doing a recce. It might be that you dip in and out, and the supervisor is on it. You know, full time. But a lot of the time you're, you know, you're side by side with the supervisor. Whereas I feel like with lighting and set quite often you hand, you know, you you don't physically make the set yourself. You might be picking paint samples out and, uh, yeah. you know, it's. I feel like that's not recognised in costume enough. I, I think they, they should be absolutely equal parity. I, w- I wonder whether this period of time that we've all been going through in terms of lockdown and you know, these various forums that have been set up to to try and rally support within the industry in terms of the plight of the freelancer and yeah. these different disciplines. I, I was sort of hoping right at the start when when these chats, these these forums were first setting themselves up and that out of it would come perhaps, maybe idealistically, a, a new way of, of operating. You know, yeah. aside from the safety aspect of what of what goes on in theatre and on film sets and TV sets, the structure of employment and and how, yeah. you know, we're talking about parity, but it's it's more complex than that. It's it has to start right from the very beginning when the fir- when the project is first conceived. Yeah, I think it's a big it's a big grey area, and it actually does scare people off because they can't see that they that they can make a living from it which is partly the reason why these podcasts are hopefully you know putting themselves out there and and for people yeah. to listen to and see see what the options are for them and where they can fit in yeah absolutely yeah i i agree i did, i was talking to someone quite recently a designer that's involved in the what freelancers make company you know they've put put together talking about i know i'll talk more about the eno later but you know, we are a small costume team, quite a small team there now. Mm. We rely so much on our freelancers. Mm. And with our what worries me going forward is our as our budgets are, we spent quite a long time a couple of years ago, I know I've talked to you about this, Jonathan, about having pay parity in the costume and wigs department. At mm. the mm. And what worries me is all that hard work and all that transparency that we've, ha- we've had now for the last 18 months. Mm since it was resolved goes out the window as our budgets get slashed and our our full-time staff are expected to do more than they normally do because we can't afford the freelancers and mm. we have such uh, uh it's so important that we don't forget about them I'm in the luxury of at the moment hopefully you know that my job is safe and I'm in a house where there I know we'll be doing future productions but mm. we owe it to our freelancers that have worked so hard for us that we make sure we get them back Um, and I think even more so we need them just I'm sure you the same all our COVID health and safety things we're having to do at the moment we need we need more people and more time not less and less money yeah yeah and the shame of it in a sense is that the, the because of the safety aspect that we now all have to adhere to that that comes at a cost so yeah. what what we're discovering is that you know a percentage of every production that we that we're working on has has to allocate a spend on covid safety yeah which 
which actually, in theory, is really just good common work practice. Yeah. And 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 what it what it's actually allowing is proper time allocation to do costume fittings, to prep. Yeah. And of course, that does come at a cost. And the, where they put that cost is within, if you like, a COVID budget. Yeah. But it. But hopefully, when you know, at the point that all of this is over, whenever that is, that structure of work is still in place. Yes. So backstage, you've got proper working facilities that allow space within a very constricted environment. And, you know, I'll I'll give you an example of of a show that I was working on in the West End where my costume team in the theatre daily were were not just managing their own job spec in terms of looking after the characters' costumes, but they were having to to allow and allot time to put in front of house bar staff clothing through the washing machine or the hot box. So so it's like kind of as well as that job, they had to do this job. And and how does that, how does that division of labour work out? And you know, aside from the let's all be a family aspect, actually, they should have their own, which they, which I've discovered they now have, but they should have their own washing facilities and their own yeah. preparation facilities and costume should, you know, flourish within its own environment. Yeah, exactly. That's what that's what worries me. I don't know if you saw we did a drive, the first drive in opera. We did um, La Boheme. Yeah, I read at, about that. Palettes which is still on Sky Arts, I think, which was incredible. But we just found we needed more people. You know, our budget was tiny, but we were all so desperate to get on and put something on, put a show on. We did use a couple of freelancers, which was great to help us make the costumes, but most of the stuff was from stock, which we then altered. But we had such... we. Ha- I mean, I think the our guidelines on our our own risk assessments covid kind of risk assessments were so stringent but i i mean i think we've been able to rein them in it was sort of a test mm. process as well but we were we were doing fittings where it was just the designer the artist and the supervisor so not the not the person that's made the costume they zoomed in they watched the video online uh, uh, the fitting online and then prior to the artist trying it on we quarantined it for 48 hours hours and then after I wore full PPE uh, the designer had to stay you know two meters apart only I was allowed to come close to the artist Mm. and then once we'd done the fitting we quarantined it again before it went to the workroom and they did the alterations have you been using perspex screens no we were using visors and wigs are using perspex screens they're having those put in for when they go back next week but the we've got quite a big workroom at um lily and bailey's house and we only had three people in so they just they were really widely spread out we used our ozone cabinets mm. and, you know, which are antibacteria. So we did, did that as well, disinfected everything. We tried every disinfectant spray from more plan you can, we could gather. And essentially you got through the, the, the production. We got through it. We were two teams. There was two teams of singers. There was like a red team and a blue team. We had two supervisors, me and Natasha. But of course we only had one designer and one director. So you do as much as you can. Mm. You know, my designer was in my fittings one week. And then the following week, she was in the red team's 
fittings, but we kept ourselves fairly separate. I mean, it did work. No one fell ill. Everyone got their temperature taken and we had COVID supervisors. And it was a new production. It was a brand new production, yeah. And it was wonderful. And it was had 100 cars. I don't know how much money you can make from those sort of things, but it was really important. I think that we were seen to be putting on something that was innovative oh yeah and I, and I, not just putting on something but putting on something new yeah rather than just taking a revival or something a revival yeah. which is already there in essence and just throwing it out on stage with whatever you could do with an audience that met the requirements of social distancing yeah I, I think it was innovative and I, I applaud you for it I think it's and I think that that resourcefulness and that thinking outside of the box but in a creative way, as opposed to a narrow, desperate way. So in terms of the relationship between design and supervision, does the idea then, because, you know, obviously this, through your process of studying, you're, you're being taught about how to take narrative and turn it in, you know, and and characterise through narrative with your performers. And the, the, the process of design in terms of how one comes to realize the the physical look of what it is that you're working with your team to create that slightly ethereal way of working is that is that not concrete enough for you is that why the supervision gives you the satisfaction that it does because of the actual solid skill base of the technical skill base yeah maybe I so deep down I there is a designer in me and I have been lucky enough I have designed a few shows and I still do oh I know I know you have. And, I, and and the thing is, Sarah, that I've had direct working experience with you yeah. when we did Dr. D yeah. from the Cape Town from Manchester. But I, I also know that the reason why, you know, some of the best set designers and costume designers, designers love working with you is because they know that your, your design aesthetic is simpatico. And they, you, you know, Catherine Zuber, she, she, she would love to pluck you out of the, you know, and have you kind of working on, because she, she actually, you know, she's a hugely, as, as, as our audience will know, because she was a, one of our podcast interviews, but her, her career is sensational in terms of what she's accomplished. And, and, you know, not just with awards, but her, her process of work is, is involving and, um, and collaborative. And, and I, and I, I know for a fact that, you know, she she holds you in the highest with the highest respect because she she can she can talk to you about what it is that she needs to do because of your understanding of design. Yeah, and also that collaboration that you just mentioned. I think that they're my favourite designers. Those ones that I mean, I I the first time I worked with her and she kept saying, "What do you think, Sarah?" I was going to do her accent then, but I'm not going to. <laughs> She, you know, what do you think? And I was like, oh my God, Kathy Zuba's asking me what I think. And I'm like, and I, you know, I've been in this business 25 years. I, of course, I've got strong opinions. And, but yeah. I, I love how much she trusts me. And Les is the same. And Francis O'Connor, there's lots of great Katrina. Katrina. I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah. Katrina is so busy as well. So she, um, she engulfs herself. In, in people that she trusts because she's always got so many um, amazing projects on as well and it's and she's so collaborative I love working with Katrina it's amazing because she really does yeah. trust her her team and, and I remembered back in back in the days that you would come in with Les and and you know he you know we talk about this word parity but but there was 
there was parity in terms of the the specifications of of the job that you were doing yeah and the you know he knew that god forbid if he got if he'd gone under a bus you would absolutely be able to take the the nuggets of what he started and you know take the whole thing to its logical conclusion yeah although i <clears throat> i mean they pe- people like les and kathy and katrina they their designs are so clear and so well thought out and they they work so closely with the directors early on the harder d- uh, jobs and i'm sure you'll agree with this just from you um you know from uh, angels trying to deal with designers it's where someone comes on late or they have they're unprepared and then they rely so much on you on they're doing 15 other jobs and you're mm-hmm. sort of in the dark they're the frustrating ones and then um, mm-hmm. and then yeah you do pull you pull your personal resources from you with your knowledge and your skills and your and your uh, it used to be a book for me now it's obviously on our phone but you know your contacts and stuff and you, and your knowledge of fabrics and makers and you pull it together there is shows like that where you feel like huh i could i should have been the costume designer on this one i mean i'm not going to yeah. mention anyone's names or anything but you know those exist as well yeah, um, yeah. but i love uh, you know i'm we've been lucky with uh, i'm lucky that i've worked with some of the best designers set and costume Oh, you, you you definitely have. And so, do you feel that now, being in a position where you've you've been at the ENO and working at the Collie now for what what is it the best fifteen years? No, it's uh, ten, it'll be ten years next year. Was that a conscious decision that to go into an an environment that would give you a full time structure within within this industry when so much of it is kind of scary in terms of where you're going to get your next job from? I'm no I mean it was a sort of accident jobs that it's sort of in-house jobs in costume are very rare as you know they don't come up very often I didn't even see the advert when I first uh, someone just told me about it and said you know there's a super supervisor jobs going at the you know and my kids were quite young I think I'd had a bit of a I worked freelance for 15 years maybe more and I was at the RSC and the National and the Globe, but also the Almeida and back at the Young Vic and um, the Royal Court and places. So I was, it was a mixture of doing, you know, if I was doing a big gig at the RSC or the National, then, you know, the money was better. It was, you could just do one job. But when you were at the Almeida and the Young Vic, there's the smaller theatres, they have a lot less budget. You'd find yourself doing two or three jobs at once. I had yeah. I had a young family, so I was conscious that I was, even though I was really an established supervisor working with these big designers, I was still waiting quite a long time to be paid sometimes. And, and someone told me to apply for this job, and I thought, yeah, may, maybe that's quite good for me at this point. Yeah, uh, you know, I'm my kids are quite young, there's a bit of stability and I wasn't sure. You, mean you weren't sure going into a... Into I was a, worried about the politics of the building and things yeah. like that. Do you, do you think if a job had come up at the... You know, because I know that you're London-based, but if, if a job had come up at the Opera House or the, or the National, would you have considered them as well? Was it... I think it was I think it was time and I I mean I worked had worked quite a lot in opera and I do love that medium I I enjoy working in opera from a costume point of view so and dance 
ballet? I, do you know, I've hardly done any. I've done a bit of contemporary dance. I've hard, I've never done ballet. Never. The only, I mean, the only ballet we do is quite often in, at the ENO. We have dance pieces that. But no, I've not, I'm really inexperienced in dance. I'd love to do more dance. It would be wonderful. Because obviously, so so Les hasn't brought you in to do all no, this ocean no, stuff. That's interesting, isn't it? That you know, even even within his world, which you know is famously kind of so complete and fully rounded, he's got people that he uses for yeah. specific things. Yeah, and I I actually think dance is very specific. I think. I think theatre and opera and film, from a costume point of view, uh, crisscross a bit over. I think there's a, mm. but I think dance is, yeah, there's, it's, it's trickier. You're, I think you're absolutely in the hands of the, of the dancer and the choreography. Yeah, and that, and that very, very fabulous process of rehearsal, and kind of working it all out, and then at the last minute, yeah, it all kind of like falls into place, and that's when you can, kind of whoosh you're off from the starters yeah. point in terms of what you need to do clothing wise yeah I, I i don't know how any dance designer can actually just kind of present however they've conversed with the with the director um a, a, a face accompli in terms of a set of designs that... yeah i it's very organic yeah the process i think is very developmental yes yeah. tell me in terms of work at the eno and you know, for anyone that, that doesn't know, they, they have the performing space with all of the backstage and support for the performing space uh, in, in St Martin's Lane. But up in West Hampstead is this rather remarkable nerve centre of rehearsal space and workrooms and the most fabulous dye rooms and all within the confines of, 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 of an Edwardian building, isn't it? Yeah, it was actually... The old, uh, it was a Decker, the Decker building. They, I think um, Tom recorded yeah. there and the Rolling Stones. They famously turned down the Beatles, evidently. So they went up to Abbey Road. So, yeah, it's this very strange. It's got, uh, I think the facade of the building is protected. The rest has been over. It's got a kind of 70s feel as well with all the recording. Our rehearsal rooms are old recording studios. They've even got the... Oh, it's, a, it's such a rabbit warren. It I don't think I've ever... I don't think I've ever found my way through a corridor. <laughs> yeah, I spend a lot of time rescuing, rescuing designers from corridors. Yeah. Where am I? <laughs> We're lucky we had, I mean, before I started, there was a full workroom. There, so there's a dye room, there's a, there's Megan, and our milliner, um, which is the best room in the building, I think. Everyone goes there for a cup of tea and a chat with Megan. Oh, I, I, I love, Sh- I like, it, it's Sharon, isn't it? <clears throat> yeah, Sharon and Stephanie are up in the dye room. Yeah. And then we have um, Hilary and Rachel are our two full-time alterations. Uh, well, they're more than that. They make as well, but they're uh, our alterations technicians. And then we have two supervisors, me and Natasha, and then Christina is our head of costume. And and do do your alteration team come onto shows, or are they are they just basically working their way through the season in terms of work? This yeah, no, they uh, they're just they work. They're based there. They the only reason the only time they come onto a show is when we have our rehearsals on stage. So our tech week which in opera is uh, called stage and pianos and stage and uh, orchestras. And they will come down for sewing support 
to the London Coliseum for maybe a week, 10 days. But we also have our running wardrobe team. So we have a wardrobe mistress, our dressers and the, and the maintenance, support maintenance there as, as well. So once the once the show's at our public dress rehearsal stage, then um, the team go back to LBH and they start on the next show. How, how far ahead do you know what's coming in your season? Do you know what's going, like coming out of the repertoire and, and, and what's new? Yeah, we, well, we have, I mean, it's a bit different at the moment because everything keeps changing because of COVID. So our, we have these advanced technical schedules and Christina and I will budget for the show's for we should have been pre-covid we had uh, what we call the cards which is this sort of list of all the shows for the next three years so we knew when my fair lady was going to be coming in um and hairspray our big musical which was postponed but and, mm. and then all the opera rep that's coming what will be new productions what will be our revivals we also do a lot of co-productions. So we, as well as Lillian Bailey's house in West Hampstead and the Coliseum, we have a space in Charlton, which is our costume store. And there's also the lighting and prop store where we've got all our, what we call our dead stock, where we have shows that are costumes that we don't use anymore. And they're, they're free for the designers to pick and use in other shows. But we also have, we have um, rackings full of all our live shows in boxes and skips and crates a bit like your angels boxes and we have them they're all itemized and on the system and then we get told whether for example at Natum, which is one of our you know philip glass specials that we do every few years and it's a co-production with the met metropolitan opera and it goes back and forth it goes to la a lot is it your team's responsibility to dispatch it in the condition that you would want to receive it or, or does it does it get shipped out and then land wherever it's going and then and then a team there work with it to get it up to de- up to scratch for their cast a, li- a little bit of both really I mean it's our it's our job to send it out in the in good condition and our our running wardrobe team do that we quite often will send one of our either a supervisor or the wardrobe mistress for the show will go out with it when we were doing Cellini which was the big which was with Katrina Lindsay which Terry and Gilliam directed that was going all over the place in Europe so I went with it to Barcelona to unpack it and talk it through with the costume team there and then they had a bit like when we would hire from you 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 know you have your strict alteration guidelines you know you can't buy a different color without checking with the the existing team you can't cut anything away you have you know you can alter it but you need to either put it back or do it within a certain you know we have these sort of strict guidelines Mm. there's a lot of of that sort of management side of it stage management side of it but we we don't prep it for the 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 theatre using the show next we just we just send it in a good condition and packed and, and what what determines what if you know with these co-productions what determines what's going to stay with you and what's going to stay at the Met for example is it is it dependent on storage or just programming generally programming I think whoever whoever is the initiator of it whoever starts so quite often the money is equal especially mm. with the Met and the you know quite often it's fairly equal but whoever... use Porgy and Bess as an example because that's something that okay so Porgy and 
So Porgy and Bess designed by Kathy Zuber. So we, that was a co-production with the Met and with uh, Netherlands Opera in Amsterdam. And we we built it here in London. Uh, we built it, some in Angels. So all the menswear was done in Angels. And we used Angelica in D- Dusseldorf. Dusseldorf, yeah. Das- Daskadon. The Lady Chorus. And so we, we started that show. We put it on we put it on at the Coliseum and then it went to Amsterdam where I went with it for a few days, met Kathy, did a few principal fittings with her, uh, went back again for the stage rehearsals and then it went to the Mets but the supervisor for the Met came and met us in Amsterdam and in London so we would talk through the show with Mm -hmm. him and then we sent everything to him and that includes the bible and and you know and everything and that includes the custom bibles the photos we do video we you know we do an archive dvd of the show and so we we send all that as well the only things we don't send quite often are if it's our co- for that particular for porgy and bess we had a extra chorus so we didn't use any of the permanent eno chorus so it's we just sent everything because that chorus went to amsterdam as yeah. well but on some of our co-productions if we're using the chorus stock tail coats or shoes or accessories from other shows or whatever then we would we don't send that as well we just but we would put that in the bible and say got to find your own yeah because that's it's your stock it's not part of the show and from angel's point of view you know that was it's a fantastic job to work on because it's it was again giving us an opportunity to work with you guys and uh katherine zuber and and un- and fairly unusually, although you know it made perfect commercial sense, we were making to we were making the items to sell as opposed to yep. making the items that would ultimately come back into our stock for then you know subsequent rehires. And you know that's that's a job by job decision that we take, but it was important at the point that that you know this all came up that knowing that we had a skill base here that Kathy wanted to employ and because I'm you know with my angels hat on I'm ever wanting to kind of I suppose display our capabilities to organizations like yours and it it, in in that instance it, it worked very well because you were able to kind of get a block of characters done what I saw on stage looked amazing. Yeah, it was it was wonderful. It's one of my proudest shows there. But what was great about doing it with you guys was the resource. So Kathy would she? I mean, she knows your stock so well as well. So when we were when we were looking for shapes of uh, you know a style of a jacket or a lady's dress, you know, she, she would pull things out that she liked and we could give them to your workroom and then they would co- copy yeah. it. That complemented her designs. It wasn't just a random march through the racks. And, no, you know, no, very, absolutely you know, not. And, and for anyone listening, you know, that what, what Sarah's explaining is essentially that, you know, this is a job that is so complex in, in a fantastic way and so involving. And actually, ultimately, as, as I hope you've gathered from the way that we're talking it ultimately so rewarding yeah it was incredible Ge- but generally yeah. you know the, the pressure and the amount of application that we all have to do in terms of focus and concentration how where, how did you learn about basically setting up a production in terms of bibles and understanding the 
the, the timing of everything? Was that just something that developed over many years or? Yeah, I think it was being an assistant. I think going back, rewind slightly to when I left college, although I, you know, I was lucky I left with some dressing work in place. I was an assistant. I assisted, I assisted Hilary Lewis, who you know very well, you know, I was, I was, I assisted her. She was doing, um, she worked for a company called the London Bubble Theatre and I was, she was the supervisor for that and I was her assistant. And then I became the wardrobe. I would stay on and be the wardrobe assistant on that show. So I would run the show as well. And I worked with her for about three or four years, uh, so much so that she sort of had, she sort of groomed me in a nice Mm. way. You know, she taught me a lot of stuff. She was doing this real mixture. She was doing some big operas. She did a lot of stuff at Wexford. So we would come to Mm. you. We would do whole, that's when you were in Camden. I used to come and, you know, go, we would go to Camden and spend weeks and weeks pulling through all your mm. racks to get chorus, massive chorus full of costumes for for operas that we were doing, and then you'd ship them over to Ireland, and then we would fit them all there. But she, so that that I learned from her the importance of how to be organised, how to to document. I mean, it was very different then. We used to take Polaroids, and we there was none of smart. You can't put, upload it onto your iPad like we. There's no, there's no mobile no. phones. Was there? <clears throat> no, none, not, not when we first started. So, uh, yeah, I think I, I learned from how I assisted Emma Riots. There's, you know, some really great core kind of supervisors who who taught me about being very organised and you just have but to... In, but in turn, now, I, I, I get the sense from observing you over, over these years that you're very aware that that's... In order for the job to progress, you, you do exactly that with your teams. And yeah. you know, I've, I've watched you with Hannah Warren and various costumers and, and, and Emma, yeah. who are absolutely, if you like, ripe to, to to take the mantle. And because it is about training and it is about encouraging, playing to people's strengths and encouraging them forward. What you can't is function through fear yeah you know we're all we're all quite sensitive and and those those toxic environments that 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 we've all had to deal with at some point encounter just uh, uh, are absolutely the death now aren't they of any kind of creativity yeah and luckily they're not that there's not too many of those it's interesting you talking about hannah bringing up hannah because hannah and emma howarth were they were like my perfect assistants and now they've both got great careers themselves, but it was, they had such great, having an assistant that wasn't a costumier at Angels is I can't think of a better, a better assistant. They were so knowledgeable. Mm. And I mean, I always, you know, I did, I always used to ask for either of those when they were both mm. working there, but when, but when Hannah came and worked with me at the ENO, she did about two years with me as an assistant. And then she ended up um, supervising a couple of shows herself mm. as well. And um, it's such a great foundation. I mean, they you do it all there as a costumier because you you learn the knowledge. You you have to be super organised, but you learn about diplomacy, which is fifty percent of our job a lot of the time. How to deal with actors and designers. And- That's that the language of the fitting room, and and also the, the language yep. of of the customer and how and how you need to, if you like, choose your moment. And I, the, the the funny thing is, is that I. I'm not sure that I would be that happy being a costumier 
now these days at, at angels the way that because it's the structure is now so big and and i i only say yeah. that in context to how i started which was essentially cleaning shoes at shaftesbury avenue <laughs> and the opportunity that that gave all of us at that time because it wasn't just you know as i progressed and learned the trade having always had an interest in history and storytelling and you know film and theater but not no actual concrete training but to actually learn on the job in terms of having to do my own alterations um you know steaming yeah. hats and and of course the business was much smaller than being angels was much smaller then it didn't have yeah it, it didn't have the function that it has now and um it it was it was a wonderful it was a wonderful learning space that which is why when i go into an organization like you know liam bayless at west hampstead and you see everybody working in that way it's just it it, it makes <laughs> gives me a warm feeling yeah it is it's wonderful and it they, it's a it is a lovely place to work they are um we're a small team now, but we're, we are, we're, it's very collaborative. But through necessity, because of what is currently yeah. going on and the transition of the, of, of the, of the organisation of the ENO and how it, you know, yeah. how it works out. And what I just said is not to dismiss the, the relevance of angels now. I'm just purely commenting on, on what, yeah. what, you know, on basically 40 years ago, which, you know, to anybody... Yeah, to anybody is kind of almost an irrelevance now. Yeah. And it's still, uh, I mean, for a costume year there now, I still think it's oh. an incredible opportunity. Oh, and then just if you have any love at all for costume and theatre or film, to be immersed in that surrounding, you know, the people that walk in and out of your doors, the designers oh, yeah. and the actors. And yeah. the, I mean, the very first time, I remember my first time going to Angels and it was... Or it was definitely my first job there. Uh, Ewan McGregor was there. He was uh, being fitted for Velvet Goldmine, yeah, I think yeah, it was. Yeah. And there was a lot of costumiers all fluttering around, a bit flustered. And um, he walked out in these kind of hot... I think he was just trying some shapes on or something. But he walked out in these sort of tight leopard skin trousers and literally everyone was all of a flutter. I ended up working with Ewan McGregor at the uh, Donmar warehouse and I told him that story. He's lovely. <laughs> Is so, so, Sarah, tell me, have you got? Is there, is there a single piece of advice that you would you'd offer to somebody who wanted to be to kind of immerse themselves in your world? I I don't know if there's a single piece. I feel like it's an old cliche, but I think the best people in theatre are the ones that have started at the bottom. They haven't had this sense of entitlement or privilege that we, you know, you're lucky if you get you leave college and you get a a great gig. But it, it, I think it's amazing if you can start. I think all the best costume supervisors and designers were dressers, and that's not to belittle a dresser. I mean, we've got life. We've got dressers at the you know that it's a life job for them, and they're amazing, mm. and we couldn't do without mm. them. But and that's their choice. It's worked very well with their lifestyles. But there's a lot of young, mostly women. We'd love to have more boys. It's one of my. Uh, little missions hopefully when everything gets back to normal that we would like to get more men in wardrobe Mm. but I think working your way through 
immersing yourself, asking questions. I just was, I was just a bit of a nosy Parker. You know, when I was at the Young Vic, I was, I would chat to designers. That's the thing. It's the curiosity. Yeah. You've got to be curious. You've got to want to know how everything works. And of course, the fine line is, you know, the balance between curiosity and actually kind of getting on with the job that you're being brought in to do. But in order to get on with that job, you've got to understand how everything else functions. Yeah, absolutely. You need to understand all the how all the cogs yeah. work in the in, in the whole of the whole of it. And it, and you know, hang out hang out with the props department and in your tea break or chat to other people, learn a bit about it. I think it's yeah. You don't have to be a smoker standing at the stage door. No. No, I was telling someone the other day, day about smoking, where I did this, one of my first dressing jobs was Natasha Richardson, Anna Christie it was called, at the Young Vic, and she ran off stage and had to do this full costume change, and light, and she had to go on smoking, and part of my job as the dresser was to light her Woodbine cigarette, take a puff of it, hand it to her, so it was half smoked as she walked back onto the stage. <laughs> I mean, you just couldn't. I didn't smoke. I never, I'd never smoked. I was like trying not to cough. <laughs> you couldn't do that now. That's thirty years ago. Hopefully, her mic turned off. Yeah, yeah. Wretching <laughs> <Yeah>. away, <laughs> or worse, choking on a bit of old woodbine stuck in your yeah, stuck on your tongue. Yeah. Well, you could. You certainly couldn't do that now in our new COVID world. No. No, but anyway, even in our, new, in our health and safety, which rightly so, you shouldn't be asking dressers to do that or anyone to do that. But I mean, you can't smoke real cigarettes on stage anymore anyway, no. can you? So, so Good, Sarah, things. thank you so much. It's been, it's been amazing hearing your insight because it's absolutely invaluable. And I should shout just quickly, if I can, shout out to all the amazing people that made, including some of your angels, ex-angels and angels team that helped make scrubs with me for their... Eno Scrubs campaign. It was, it was well. It was. It felt. It didn't feel like a big gesture. It just felt like the most natural thing to do to us at the time, for us to do at the time, because we were, you know, we weren't at work, and it was just the in-house team and a couple of our freelancers. But there was fifty of over fifty of us wow. uh, making scrubs, and and seventy-five percent of those people were freelancers, and they're freelance costume makers that are currently, you know, not making costumes. So. Did you know that we donated all our stock of scrubs? And, I did. Uh, Estelle uh, told me. Yeah, that was um, it. Was amazing. Yeah, I, I, I think it's amazing. I think it just goes to show the theatre community, the humility showed over these last seven months. Is it now? Mm. You know, let's hope we don't all get. Well, the resource, the resourcefulness, yeah. and the practicality. You know, when you've got a skill base, you you can't you can't let it. No. Festo, it's got to it's it's got to be encouraged and promoted and championed. Cha- yes, championed yeah, and challenged. Absolutely. Absolutely. Sarah, thank you very much. You're welcome. It's lovely to talk to you. Nice to talk to you. And I know that Richard and, and I are really pleased that you're part of this world now. Yeah, I, look, I look forward to seeing you both in the flesh sometime, not too in not too long. Well, yeah, at, at a distance. At a distance, of course. I'm fully pooped. In my scrubs. <laughs> I didn't realise just how much she does as a supervisor on a production, the travelling and what the responsibility, it's, it's, it's incredible the amount of work that she has to cover in that role. Yeah. I think it's really important that throughout this series of chats, we've, we've managed to focus on 
on lots of different aspects of what this job entails, all the different levels of skill base that, that, that are required. And the thing that I thought was interesting about Sarah is that she has actually done all of those jobs. Hmm. She can make, she can dress, she has worked on films, she has worked for small theatres, so she knows what it's like working in, in an environment with a really restricted budget. She's also worked for major production houses like the RSC, the National, the, the you know, and now as a you know as a working mother, you know, to have a job that that, that with that amount of responsibility is throws out really good signs to anybody wanting to sort of progress through this business and and have a secure job that 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 you know that isn't within the freelance sector and and thereby constrained by the the problems therein of being a freelancer. I think it's something, I mean, we we did change, I'm sure people noticed, there's some of the ways we're doing the questions, we have added a few in about uh, the the work-life balance and everything, and I actually think it's very interesting to that you point that out, especially because if you look at the, the most recent interviews we have released, Sarah Bowen, Amy Roberts, Emma Wright, and Estelle Cleary, all four of them are all different yeah. stages of being uh, of being mothers, mm-hmm. but they've all been doing the careers that they've done with children and found ways of working with that and making it work. And I think it was Amy who possibly made the comment about how she'd seen in the past what people felt or the approach they took to people who'd have children and decisions she made. But I definitely think things have definitely changed and it is possible to do and, and it shouldn't be something that, hampers you not that it it shouldn't be something that hampers you it shouldn't stymie your passion if you if you are inherently interested in this environment then you you will find a way through there's no question the other nice thing about sarah is although you know she's got a great design eye she obviously is is very comfortable in where she is and her role where she is you know she doesn't ever give the impression of wanting to be pushing the designer to one side or, 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 or taking that that role on herself, does she? Well, that, that's the fatal error, isn't it? That, yeah. That, that so often happens. Yeah, of course, you... I could do this job much better than, yeah. than they could. Yeah, I think, I think she acknowledges <laughs> her responsibility and she also acknowledges the responsibility of the designer. Yeah, and, you know, and, and the people that, that are really successful in this business on either side, whether it's the for want of a better word, the design or the administration, the supervising side, the, the really strong ones are the people who recognise that their role is crucial, um, but mm-hmm. don't try and abrogate somebody else's role as well. You know, yeah. recognise what you can, you know, recognise what you want to do and do it as well as you can. And you get rec- and you do get recognised for it. The, the interesting thing I got from Sarah's conversation with you, Jonathan, was the comment of, at first, she was insulted when the person turned around and said she'd make a really good supervisor, but she couldn't, she didn't see that oh, that's where she's ended up and she's extremely good at it. But the people like there's Sarah, there's David Davenport, there's Andrew Hunt, Giles Gale, Boone Campbell that we've spoken to, all of who have got fantastic reputations as supervisors. And it's not a case of it's a role that, oh, anyone can do. It's not. It's a role that when you are good at it, you are known for being good at it, just the same way that people might know 
Amy Roberts is fantastic for designing X. Sandy Powell's phenomenal at designing Y. These people are also very good at what they do and they're known for it. And it's not just the designer who is known within the, the role that they are a designer par excellence. You also get supervisors who are considered that. You'll get buyers who you will be speaking to in the coming months who are like that. Yeah, on set people, you know, continuity people. And, um... and other people who have made a made, made themselves a good, good, have a fantastic reputation and are known for yeah. that. So it's yeah. that's the one thing we're trying to hope everyone can, can gather. It's we're trying to highlight the, the, there's so many different roles, but when you are good at those roles, you are known for being good at those roles in this industry. It's not something that goes unnoticed no matter how small or big the project you're working on. Yeah, or and it, it, doesn't, it doesn't need to be centric to angels either. The, the, no. the fact that, that Sarah has the relationship that she has with, with us is, if you like, a, a byproduct of, of, of what getting to the nub of her job, understanding her job is all about. And that's the other thing is, yes, we've, we, we have the ability here to be able to talk to people like Estelle and Emma, and it's just another way of looking at it. But there are other costume houses and there are other institutions which we're speaking to, including the ENO as as Sarah represents. Mm. And they're all different avenues and different careers. And they're just as, they're, they're, it's all so important and it's a huge mix at the moment. And we're trying, the other thing is to try and give a bit of, nice positivity because the, a lot of people who work in our industry are freelance and they need as far as we're concerned they need to be shine a spotlight on people who are freelance yeah so yeah, and the connection and sarah was uh, i think you brought that out fantastic well sarah brought it up and you, the topics you guys talked about allowed her to to also equally praise the the freelance industry that that we work in it's also very important to make the point that I think and I think Sarah does touch on it that it's actually a very small world Mm. and whilst there is disparity between uh, the people that work within the film and television industry and the people that work within the theatre industry theatre and opera industry and dance in terms of fees and working conditions and representation that the actual technical side of of, of this industry is that it's almost like six degrees of separation between makers, designers, supervisors, and and word gets round very quickly if your face fits, and mm. but equally, it, but likewise, yeah, equally quickly if your face doesn't fit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you know, you need to always be very aware of that and keep your counsel and how and how i think it's worth bringing up another just again just to to go further and just get some understanding of it obviously angels we are a costume house and we have the costumes that we hire there are companies out there or theaters and production companies that have their own costume resources so the eno is one of them you've got uh, vanessa who you spoke to earlier this year richard that they at the guild all have their own yeah their own one so there's it used to be theatres would have their own sort of some stock of costume, but now there are still companies out there. Is it? Well, yeah, I mean the RS, the RSC has a massive stock. Um, all of all producing houses yeah. like the RSC, like Theatre Royal, but they all have costume departments that contain stock, and depending on the on the season of work that they're doing, expand and contract with workrooms and 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 
construction, but essentially a lot of work is contracted out. Mm. You, the example that you gave of the Guildhall is, is essentially that's a school. Yeah. So mm. Guildhall, like Central, Lambda, Laban, they all have their own, they have costume courses. And within those courses, their practical courses, they have, they have costume departments. And over the years, they have built up a reserve of yeah. stock and, and, you know, technical know-how in order to get work done in-house. But they're, they're not run on the same lines as uh, the costume departments of the Opera House or the, you know, or National or RSC. Yeah. I mean, those are the big ones, aren't they, Jonathan? I mean, a lot of, yeah. lot of the regional theatres are taking shows in that are touring. So, you know, Theatre yeah. Royal Bath will, will put on a show there and then they may well tour that show um, to some of the other theatres. So if you look on the on the theatre websites, you'll see that you know, they're in for a couple of weeks and then they've moved on to somewhere else, which is a different kind of discipline, isn't it, really? You're talking about the people who, who travel with those productions putting them into different mm. theatres and different um, different wardrobe areas at the back, you know, that, that sort of travelling circus element. Yeah, I mean, we spoke to Gabby and Justin very, very early on, and that was just one show for the... That was the show that was travelling from theatre to theatre, but they kept the costumes, but other things are different that the costumes might travel, as Sarah's, you, Sarah's explained what happened with some of the pieces, if they're their own stock it won't travel and they've got to find their own alternatives in the, the, the city or town or country that the show is taking place in. We're trying to at least show everyone the different ways different productions work and how it all works. So we hope you're you're getting that out of it. All. Yeah. It was a lovely interview, Jonathan. It really was. It was it was an interesting side of things. And I think, as I said, I'd never realised just how much Sarah has to do on these some of those productions that travel. And it's um, it sounds a fascinating job. And again, Sarah's one of those people, and I'm sure she has her moments, but she always comes across as extraordinarily sort of, you know, relaxed isn't the right word, but but pleasant, calm, and able. To, she's very open, yeah, and she's, without being she's sort of great you know, elaborator. Yeah, yeah. Well, the next conversation is one I'm very much looking forward to releasing, which is Richard's conversation with Howard Burden. Yes, Howard Burden, another Wimbledon. Um, graduate yeah another bbc another doctor who bbc designer another doctor who designer and of course red dwarf um yeah and topically sort of topically where is all gummage um yeah which i think is coming out of christmas i think it's a christmas special so mm. yeah it's a, I, it was enjoyable he's again very nice guy he talks about his inspirations and 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 his background and how he got into it so yeah hopefully Hopefully people enjoy it. And there's there's lots of links with Howard throughout some of our other interviews. His name props up in Verity Hawks, Emma Wrights. Amy, um, Amy. Amy. Yeah. Amy's. Yeah. So, um, Howard, the Gerard Depardieu of <laughs> the costume business. Well, here is a small excerpt from Rich's conversation with Howard Burden. Recently, I did a contemporary drama, Young Wallander, because I got it and I went, oh, no, contemporary police drama, me, really? Oh dear! Just read through, and I went, "Oh my god, this is actually really good," and it was very clever and very, very good. And that was a real departure because I've just spent the past oh five, six years going from pole dart to War of the World to my mainstay, you know, Red Dwarf to Zapped, you know, so from fiction to period, strict period to period with a twist. Very much more of my sort of theatre background, my much more my comfort zone in a way. It was good to, to push the boundaries and 
yeah, to actually sort of put your mind into sort of contemporary clothing, you know, because at the end of the day, it's, it's all the same job. You're, you're creating a character, you're finding out, you know, and if somebody's wearing a particular coat or it's a particular piece of jewellery, it's personal to that character. It's right. It's never, you don't, you don't want it to spring out, but it's, it's part of their persona in a way. So you're, you know, you're doing the same, the same job as if you're doing a period 